you <coughs> if you were down at the bottom of the hill at uh, just before eight o'clock this morning, you would have seen an unusually large. You're already laughing because you know what it was if you were there. An unusually large flock of the turkeys. They were all having a little turkey convention, more than normal around. And uh, with a bunch of the males with their tails all poofed out. And uh, I, I came around the corner and happened on them. And whatever was in my mind just flew out of it because they're so ridiculous. Uh, you know, you, you, look at the, you look at the turkeys and you think, what did God have in mind? You know, Especially with the tails poofed out, they can hardly move around, you know. And, and it looks like they're going to fall forward at any moment. And, you know, I, 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 I thought about it at the time, and I thought, you know, it was really important that Larry talked last night about gratitude and joy. I thought to myself, I saw those poofed-out turkeys, I thought, I'm glad I'm alive, because I got to see, all the, see those tur- I've seen them before, you know, but I've got to see them again, so I'm glad I made it till this morning, so I got to see them again. And and Larry talked last night about that that the uh, participating in the mudita of being part of creation, and it was a really it was a wonderful talk, and it came right on the heels of an equally wonderful talk by Heather the night before on the many many different ways in which the mind gets caught in suffering over and over and over again, and for the rest of our lives, as far as I can tell, you don't finish. You, you maybe spend less and less time caught in bouts and cycles of suffering, but nevertheless, I don't know anybody who's completely finished. But it, it, it was really wonderful to hear those two teachings together. And when I see something like those turkeys, and I feel my mind, wow, look at that. Really, thank goodness, I'm here to see it. Tonight there will either be or not any longer be the tiniest sliver of moon. It's been getting littler and littler and littler. So we've been here from a little moon through a huge full moon to almost the moon gone, and then it'll be gone altogether until Friday night when the new sliver of moon will come back, and two weeks from Friday will be the full moon again. And that just keeps rolling on from the beginning of time until now, you know. Um, I'm, I, I think a lot in terms of moon calendars. So I have somebody who sends me a moon calendar every year as a New Year's greeting, so it's always on my refrigerator so I can tell when the moons are going to be. That balancing of really seeing the difficulty in life and... Uh, not only seeing it, but having the heart to respond to it, I think really depends on being able to see the wondrousness of incarnation. Many, many years ago, I was uh, on a retreat. I was a retreatant on a retreat. And my, uh, my, my task that I did every day was folding towels. I folded dish towels uh, in a little alcove off the room in which the teaching faculty had their meals. So one afternoon I had the great benefit um, of folding towels and uh, 
you couldn't help but overhearing what they were talking about, <laughs> which I was very interested in overhearing, so I was listening. Uh, and people were talking about why they continued to be devoted to practice, what inspired them. And these were my teachers who I revered and whose wisdom I really admired. And my teacher, Joseph Goldstein, who I very much admired, said, I'm practicing in order to develop a deeper and deeper understanding of suffering. And at the time, I thought to myself, oh dear. Uh, <laughs> I, I actually started this practice because I was hoping to be less in touch with the suffering of life because I, I, it's really what propelled me into practice, not even that something terribly grievous that happened to me. I had had some losses in my young adult life, but uh, the losses that I saw around me all the time, I seemed to be able to see nothing but losses. And I had come to practice because I wanted to be liberated of what I thought was that view. And here was Joseph saying, I want to be more, I want to have a deeper and deeper understanding of suffering. And I come to really, uh, at this point of my life, think, so do I. I. I want to so clearly see not only the suffering that's the manifest suffering of the world with half of it doesn't have enough to eat and the terrible things that happen because of divisions that we make up in our mind between this group and that group or that group or that group and because of the violence that's become part of the fabric of everyday life, not just that but really the suffering that I can directly address, like the suffering in my mind when I am unable to accommodate the circumstances of my life and the suffering in everybody else's life. And I want a deeper and deeper understanding of the fact that that same cycle of caught in suffering and then freed of suffering, caught again and then free of it and then caught again is part of the universal malady of being a human being because if I remember that, I'm much kinder to myself because I'm caught again and I'm only human and to other people too. And also because I want to be able to see and appreciate more and more turkeys and moons and operas and uh, the fact that the flower makes the same color, the tree makes the same color flowers at more or less the same time every year. I want to be able to see both sides of that. I found, um, someone actually sent me um, a quote from Anne Morrow Lindbergh the other day. And it says, I do not believe that sheer suffering teaches. If suffering alone taught, all the world would be wise because everyone suffers. To suffering must be added compassion, understanding, patience, love, honesty, willingness to remain vulnerable. So I thought a few things when I read that. First I thought it sounds very much like the list of uh, the virtues of the heart that the Buddha is said to have cultivated uh, before his lifetime as Siddhartha Gautama in which he awoke as uh, the enlightened one, the Buddha. That sounds like the list of the paramitas. I also thought uh, 
about, it led me to think about, if it said sheer suffering alone wouldn't do it, would need to be suffering balanced by compassion and some sense of love and uh, relationship. And I thought back about, I thought to myself, the Buddha saw those sights. Uh, either he saw them uh, hypothetically or allegorically as a dream. Uh, maybe beings from another realm presented themselves to him in his, ver- in, his, in his view or in his dreams. Maybe as the story is often told, he left the confines of his protected palace and went out and actually saw how it is in the real world. But one way or another he saw, and I thought to myself, I've never thought about the fact that he could have, presumably at that point, said, well, this is terrible, I'm going right back to where it was okay, you know. But he didn't do that. So I thought to myself, I'm going to take that seriously, that story. Allegory, not allegory, I'm going to take it seriously. What were the things that caused the Buddha to see in a way that he had not seen before, that the way of human beings was the way of suffering? of old age, sickness, and death, and the pain of suffering throughout. Well, of course, he saw the sight of the, the fourth sight of the monk with a, a serene a visage in the middle of that, which might have conveyed the idea that um, peace was possible in this lifetime and sent him on a search for how to find it. I also thought back in what we know about, anecdotally about his background, And I thought about the fact that when the stories are told about his life, that he was a very well-loved and um, much-anticipated and happily welcomed into this world person. And I think that for all of us human beings, to the degree that we are brought into this world and welcomed into this world and raised in a nurturing way, to that, whatever degree that happens, I think we have more fortitude to be able to look at pain in the world and hold it clearly in our view. And we have more uh, of a natural impulse to relate to it because we've been well taken care of. I thought to myself as well of the anecdote that's often told about the Buddha about his sitting uh, under the rose apple tree as his father was out doing some ritual plowing of the field and on some... Uh, special calendar day, and falling accidentally into a particular state of mental ease and delight, a reverie. Um, and it's always called the experience under the rose apple tree, so that he did have an experience personally of peace of mind. So I thought about all of those as, okay, those might have been some of the reasons that upon seeing the truth of how it is in the world, He then set about trying to find the cause and the end of suffering to be able to be of service to all beings. And I thought of one more uh, part, one more aspect of the stories that we know about the Buddha that I like to think, uh, whether they're allegorical or whether they're true, I'd like to take them as uh, a metaphor for uh, what holds us up so that we are able to uh, approach the world with its huge and endless amount of pain, with um, enduring compassion and kindness. And um, 
it's said that in the lifetimes prior to his lifetime as Siddhartha Gautama, he needed to develop those uh, virtues of the heart, generosity, morality, renunciation, wisdom, patience, energy, truthfulness, determination, loving kindness, and equanimity. That in all, I, all of them, I think, are permutations of kindness. You think about them, they're all uh, reflections of kindness. And I have, uh, I've loved the Paramitas uh, ever since I heard about them and began to read Jataka tales. The Jataka tales are stories uh, told uh, uh, since the beginning of Buddhism as ways to transmit knowledge to the next generation. They're like um, um, fairy tales for children. They're stories of the Buddha in previous incarnations when he was a uh, wise buffalo who was willing to endure uh, annoyance at the hand of a mountain sprite uh, so long that the mountain sprite itself came and sat down and said, Buffalo, explain to me uh, why it is that you're so nice to me. Nobody else has ever been nice to me. And you're nice to me. And the buffalo explains, well, you know, it's painful to have a bad thought about somebody. And I see that nobody likes you. And I'll be kind to you. And so the buffalo converts this uh, formally teasing mountain sprite a tree sprite into a good friend of his and a good friend of everyone else's. It's called um, it's called um, patience, I guess. There's one in which uh, the um, the Buddha in a previous incarnation is the head of um, is the king of a band of monkeys that lives in a mango tree uh, upriver from where a certain king is living with a group, uh, with his kingdom of human followers. And they live in a wonderful mango tree. And uh, one day a mango falls down into the Ganges and floats downstream and the king finds it and eats it and is so entranced by the taste of the mango that he enlists his whole following to go up and find that mango tree so that they can enjoy it as well. And they come up and the monkeys overhear them talking about not only eating the monkeys, the mangoes, but eating the monkeys as well. And they're terrified. And the king of the monkeys at that point in the story ties a reed to his ankle and he leaps across the river and catches onto a branch on the other side of the river. And he shouts to all his monkeys, run across the reed. And 80,000 monkeys run across the reed and over his back and sit to safety on the other side of the river. And as they do that, and as he rescues all these monkeys, his own back is broken and he falls to the ground and he's dying. And the king picks him up and is very moved by him. And he says, why did you do that? And he says, I'm the king of these people. And they love me, and so I love them, so I wanted to save them. And the king is converted to love and to kindness and rules in an entirely different way for the whole rest of his life. So the stories of the the Buddha as a monkey and the the Buddha as a buffalo 
are wonderful. And uh, whether or not they, I take them as metaphors for the fact that uh, cultivating a particular paramita, a particular virtue of the heart, can save one's own self, convert a world around you to goodness, because the goodness itself is so extraordinary. So I thought, well, I went back and I remembered that um, in the beginning of my practice, when I heard about uh, practice being organized as Sila Samadhi Panya, virtue practice, mind discipline, and wisdom uh, cultivation, uh, I had an idea that virtue practice, the beginning of it, uh, of the path, maybe it was presented to me this way, maybe I heard it that way, but how I heard it was that it was a good idea to be virtuous, because if you were virtuous, then your mind would not be filled with blame and, and remorse and misgivings and guilt, and you would be able to meditate. So the point of the virtue was so that you could be able to meditate. And then once you could meditate, then you could have insight. From insight would cultivate as wisdom. And from wisdom it would express itself as compassion. And then you would elicit, you would manifest those very virtues out of your great compassion. So I thought, well, that doesn't make sense to have it only go one way. Why not start by practicing how you would be and sort of fake it until you make it. Why don't you come over here and do the behave in a way as if you were enlightened and full of insight about the truth of the human condition. And maybe that would be a way, starting from the other side of the equation, to develop those very same insights that you would have had you developed the insights through intuitive visions, through meditation. Not at all to take anything away from the value of meditation and the extraordinariness of direct uh, insight into the nature of suffering and the nature of the end of suffering. I mean, here we are all doing that and clearly devoting our lives, many of us, to that. But really I began to think about virtue practice as not the aid to meditation practice, but virtue practice as actually the path to liberation. (laughs) that if I took it upon myself to say, I really am going to practice truthfulness, let's say, for example, one of the paramis, I'm going to be truthful in everything that I say. I would have to be mindful every moment of what I was about to say. And as I was saying something, I'd have to be mindful of what's the impact of this. And after I said it, I'd have to think about what was the impact of that. And I'd have to have very strong concentration in order to uphold that mindfulness all the time. And I'd have to have tremendous effort, in terms of wise effort, to notice what I'm about to say and decide not to say what I was just about to say because it was a fun piece of gossip or it would have really made my point in a, in a way that I hadn't made before I would sway people to my opinion because I hadn't so far. I would do something covert. Or What about if I took on patience as a practice all the time, as my main practice? 
what would I learn from patience? Would I not learn that things happen when the necessary and sufficient conditions have been met for that thing to happen? You know, that we don't have to... It can't be a full moon the day after tomorrow. (laughs) However much I like full moons and wish it could be a full moon, if I have any amount of energy invested in, I wish it were a full moon because I really love a full moon, then I'll be uncomfortable because a full moon is going to be definitely be two weeks from Friday. <laughs> there was a certain time that I was doing long-term practice in Barry, and we did a certain chant sheet at the end of the day, and we did a, a number of chants. And the last chant I really loved. I loved that chant so much. Be waiting all day with a kind of internal impatience that we should get up to the chant. And then when we got up to the chanting time, I was already starting to get impatient because we weren't up to the last chant because I really loved that. And, you know, it's, it's, you know when, the, when the mind is quite still and there's not very much going on, you can get really uh, involved with when is the last chant and why are they? And then halfway through the chants, I was already beginning to feel badly because it was soon going to be when the chant passed over and wasn't going to happen for another 24 hours. So you realize the, the pain of needing to have something happen when it isn't going to happen. And then patience becomes not a discipline, it becomes a wise act. It becomes an act of wisdom. Things happen in due time. They happen when they happen. Matter of fact, what I really thought I would do is go through each of those paramitas with you and talk about, suppose they were the practice, not this meditation that we're doing here. Wonderful as it is, would we not arrive at those same understandings that we hope to arrive at by sitting here day after day and paying attention. So I'll tell you, first of all, before we even start, that uh, I actually believe that all of the paramitas are um, permutations of each other. That given a chart, if you took any one of them and said, I'm going to use this as a lens, uh, the first of the paramitas is generosity. And it's often said that the Buddha said that generosity is first because it's primary uh, among the paramitas. But I think that there's a way of saying that all of the paramitas are generosity. Uh, we'll come back to generosity but th- because I think that it's... it's in- well, we'll start with generosity, not come back to it. Here we are with generosity and I see the chart in my mind. You think about generosity, you normally think about... Uh, giving something to somebody. And it's said that it has to have a few components need to be present. And one of them is you have to have something to give. And another one is the idea has to come up in your mind to give it. You have to have it in order to give it. My, my, uh, I'm always charmed to think that when somebody asked Louise Davies, who, uh, why did you donate, uh, of Davy Symphony Hall in San Francisco, uh, the Chronicle reporter said when I asked her, Ms. Davies, why did you give $6 million to build the symphony building? She said, because I had it. But that was only half of the answer, because I had it. 
she had to also want to give it. She also had to have an image in her mind that there would be people in that symphony hall enjoying the symphony, that she would be the cause of many people's later having pleasure there. I often think of Louise Davies while I'm there. I don't know whether she's in this world anymore or not, but wherever she is, I'm often there and I'm thinking, thank you, Louise Davies. You know, it, it's, uh, to, have, to do an act of generosity of a thing, you have to have the thing, but you have to also have the thought about it. And you also have to have the thought, whether it's a big thing like $6 million or uh, 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 not such a big thing, you have, to have the, you have to have a mind that's free from the thought, I need this. You know, I was, I, When James and I were in... Um, uh, look now, in 1991... Uh, we uh, went with a number of our friends to visit uh, a teacher named Punja, an Advaita teacher. And uh, we spent several weeks going to Darshan every day. We loved it. We loved him. And at the end of the time, we got to have an, uh, uh, a private interview with him, which we were thrilled about. And I guess James had told him that we were both uh, Dharma teachers in, in, in California. And he said, what do you teach? And um, I remember James saying, we taught uh, mindfulness and concentration, and we taught generosity. And uh, Punja said, there's no such thing as generosity. So I look at James, he looks at me, <laughs> said, like, we, we just started out this meeting, you know, we already messed it up. You know, but, but I can never think about it. So he said, there is no such thing as generosity. If um, there's food on the plate in front of you and you're hungry and you pick it up and you put it in your mouth, that's it. You don't think of your hand as being generous. That's just a normal thing to do. And he said, uh, if there's food on the plate, there's a lot of food on your plate and there's someone in front of you who's hungry and they don't have a plate, you pick up the stuff and put it in their mouth because it's a normal thing to do. No such thing as generosity. So we somehow carried through that whole interview. But afterwards, when we were together, I said, James, you think he's right? There's no such thing as generosity. What about we go through, if I go through my closet, I go through my closet, you know, every year it gets cool, so I'm going to put away summer clothes. And I think to myself, well, this I didn't wear. And I, I, I could really give this to the goodwill. And this I also didn't wear. I could give it to the goodwill and not just save it for next year. And this I could, well, I wore it a little, well, you know, I actually like it a little bit. Maybe I'll wear it next year. You never know. I could have such an occasion where I could need that. No, 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 I'm giving that to the goodwill. I said, maybe that's generosity. James said, maybe that's uh, closet cleaning. I think he's right, you know. It is closet cleaning. It's closet cleaning and it has a good motivation in it. But, it, you know, still there was the question of do I need it, do I not need it? Is it a little need, a lot of need? And that really generosity has to do with the sense of not being needy. I think the sense of not being needy is one of the... I don't need it is one of the most liberating kinds of feelings in the mind. 
Search the world over, there's one thing you'll find, there's nothing more rare than a satisfied mind. Do you know that song? I forgot. I think it's gospel. Search, search the world over, there's no, one thing you'll find, there's nothing more rare than a satisfied mind. They're always wanting something else. And one of the things that we discover as we pay attention in our lives and as we practice generosity is that there's always that pull, well, maybe I need it, maybe I could use it. Mm, 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 mm. But the sense of largesse when you don't need something and you, or you don't sense that you need it. When somebody, when you think, oh, I could give this away, you have that thought, and you do it. I have never regretted giving away something when somebody said, oh, I really like that. You know, I wouldn't give away my, my house or what is a nice house, give it to them. But people have, somebody once said, I love your scarf. And I'd been teaching there all weekend, and uh, I'd been a house guest, and I had a beautiful cashmere, cashmere uh, red scarf with beads off the end of it so I could throw it over my shoulder in this great dramatic way and it would hang there so nicely. And I was leaving and my hostess said, I've just loved your scarf. And I had this thought, give the scarf. So I took off the scarf and I said, here, have the scarf. She said, really? I said, really, have the scarf. You know, I like the scarf better because I gave it away than because I kept it. So every time I think about her, having the scarf wherever she is. I'm so happy that I did that because not only did she have the scarf and I had the happiness, but I had the moment of absolutely knowing that I did not need it, which is such a moment of freedom. I don't need it. I think the second line of the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, does not have to do with uh, I'll have fields to lie down in a clear water. It has to do with, I will not have a mind that needs anything else. Generosity is an amazing thing. Morality is a gift. When we are moral, we are giving people the gift of safety. When we renounce something that isn't good for us, we are giving ourselves a gift of a subdued um, nervous system. We're giving ourselves a gift of renewed health. We're giving our family a gift of knowing we're in a better shape. When we tell people the truth, really, we give them the gift of an even playing field so they have as much information as we do and they're not led astray by by false information. We give the gift of loving kindness. I care about you without anything in return. We can have the whole world as friends in our heart. We've given ourselves a friend, the gift of a mind without enmity. It's really a free mind, a mind that you can live peacefully in. So in thinking about today and talking about the, the paramis, that was not quite the ten, but you see the, 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 the point of taking generosity and saying every one of them is a gift. I'd like to say that every one of them is a manifestation of wisdom. Wisdom is the fourth of the paramis, and it's a peculiar one uh, in a certain sense, because everything else is something that you can do. 
You can get up in the morning and say, today I'm going to really be generous. Today I am going to really mind my morality. I'm going to be attentive to it. Today I am absolutely going to renounce whatever I'm absolutely going to renounce. Today I am going to uh, really work on having the energy up. Today I'm going to be patient, in, not only in my behavior, but in my mind. Something is not happening as soon as I'd like it to. I'll remember to say to myself, it's not time yet. Every one of them is something that we could actually practice. Uh, uh, building up energy, we could practice scrupulous truth-telling, we could practice our determination, not quit, practice loving-kindness. We could practice equanimity. We are practicing equanimity here. Every minute that we sit and are open to whatever is happening, say, I'm not fighting with this moment. It is what it is. This is what, I, this is what it is. May or may not be what I wanted, but it's what I got. But wisdom is a strange one. It's an anomalous one because we can't, I mean, however much we'd like to get up in the morning and say, today I'm going to be wise all day. It could, it could sneak in in some way. There's not a concrete thing that we could do. It's sort of a strange one to be in the middle of that list. So I thought instead that we might look at them together as all the other nine being uh, a parameter of wisdom. That generosity is really, uh, to be generous is to be wise, to practice generosity, to practice sharing. The Buddha said, I, I don't remember it exactly, but once you share your, uh, a meal with somebody, you will never eat without looking around and thinking, who else could I share this with? That the pleasure of sharing, the pleasure of knowing that you had sufficient and could share, that sense of sufficiency is such a pleasure that greed is so unpleasant that 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 would be the converse of it, realizing the pain of clinging Also think about uh, the wisdom of uh, giving away grudges. That uh, the grudges are fixed views that we hold about people. But sometimes I think it's much easier for me to give away uh, the clothes that I'm not so feeling I need anymore than to give up a grudge that I've had for a long time, that I have a million stories that keep cemented in place about why that grudge is worth remembering. Of course, it's nonsense. I have to use all that energy to remember the grudge. Every time I remember the grudge, it pollutes my mind with distaste. Why would I want to do that? I have a friend of mine who says, the mind is like tofu. Whatever you marinate it in, that's what it tastes like. <laughs> so that if you marinate it in grudge, it's a, you have a bitter mind. And if you marinate it in sweetness, you have an entirely different kind of a mind. So. Why would I want to keep any of those, those thoughts about who I like and who's my friend and who's not my friend and then I'll accidentally find out after a while that they were really my friend and I will have wasted all that time not, not being friends in my mind with them. I sometimes think it's so good that, uh, well, lots of times I, I teach and people listen on audio, but I think I'd love to be where... Uh, where uh, I could do the demonstration 
because I think it's so important to be able to show with my hands that the opposite of holding on is really letting go. Say, you know, and it's not the letting go where you say whatever, because, you know, that, the, the teenager whatever has got a little bit of aversion in it, you know, whatever. But to be able to say, it's like this, you know, it's just... Um, my teacher, uh, Ajahn Sumedha, frequently does that gesture. He says, my mind gets caught in some sort of an unhappiness about something that I don't like what's going on. And then I think to myself, it's like this. And then I'm all right. And I love that. I frequently call him to mind with that little gesture. I was thanking him some years ago for, um, he'd been, I'd been at a retreat that he was teaching. And he had told that story and done that gesture. And I spent a lot of time uh, telling other people that he'd said that and made that gesture. And I talked to him and I said, I'm really grateful for that teaching where you said such and such and such. And you made that gesture. And he said, I did that? He said, I made that gesture? And I loved that because he either did or he didn't. But I think he did. And for me, it was a transmission. And I went around and told a lot of people, and maybe for a lot of them it was a transmission. Who knows if he actually did or didn't do it? It doesn't matter. That the mind that's able to say, I would have liked this, but it's not like that. It's like this. What can I do? Because it's a really deep understanding into karma. What can I do? There are some things that I can do something about and some things that I can't do something about. Not it's all the same to me. It's just there are some things that I can do something about and some things that I can't. And so practicing equanimity, well, practicing equanimity in some ways is a manifestation of wisdom just by, uh, in, its, in its own ability to say, things are what they are. I can have a feeling about them. I can even like them or not like them. Remember, all the teachings that we've had, having equanimity does not mean that everything becomes just the same and you don't notice. That you could know, I really don't like this. Or, I really am enjoying this. And the essential piece of the mind does not have to be disturbed. It's like this. Wisdom is maintained by equanimity. I think to myself, you know, if... if, uh, if I were in the middle of an ocean and uh, the ocean were calm, I could see where there were boats coming and I could wave to them or whatever. If there's a lot of waves, boats might be right nearby and I couldn't see them. So to really be able to say, I'd like to be able to make a clear judgment at any point about what would be good to do. So patience is a manifestation of wisdom. I alluded to it a little bit earlier. But, um, you know, I've watched the way in which uh, I'm waiting for an email to come that somebody said they're going to send. You check, it's not there. It should be there. (laughs) They said, they said. But, you know, it'll be there when it's there. You know, undoubtedly not going to come in a million years. 
it's going to come, probably in less than a million years. But the mind tells all kinds of stories to whip itself up in the meantime. You know? Say, okay, it's not here yet. It is what it is. And to really make it clear that it doesn't mean it doesn't, it doesn't matter to me or I'm indifferent to it. I wonder if I have time to tell you about the indifferent story or the not indifferent story. I don't want to tell that story. It's a good story to tell because it has to do with the near opposite, which I also think is a better word than near enemy. The near opposite to equanimity. The far... well, the, I think there, that there are, there, there are two ways of thinking of the opposite of, of, of equanimity. One is indifference, which has negativity in it. Like, I couldn't care less. But you look like you're pretty cool about it. The other um, near opposite... Well, this is the way I want to I'm just thinking that the story is too long to tell or not. Um, it goes along. It goes along with. Um, it's actually the near enemy of mudita, but it disturbs the equanimity, so that they fit that way. It's a good enough story to tell. The near enemy of equanimity is indifference. The near enemy of mudita is, strangely enough, in the text, exuberance. You think, well. How could exuberance be a problem? You know, exuberance sounds really like it'd be a good thing. It lifts up the mind to be exuberant. I was with a, a group of people on the day that the uh, San Francisco team won the World Series pennant a year ago. People were, you know, was in the middle of a professional meeting and they had televisions on the wall so that people could keep on watching, the, with, you know, with the sound off. But they could watch, and the professional meeting is going on, but everybody was watching, you could tell. And they got all excited. People do that, you know. Uh, and it was fine. The, the near enemy of mudita is exuberance when the exuberance clouds the mind. And that's really the important piece to, to talk about, the, the clouder of the mind aspect. I was very, very, very involved in uh, working for and um, hoping for the election of Mr. Obama as our president. And I really, um, uh, in terms of um, equanimity, I didn't have so much equanimity. I was really, really, really excited about it, checking every day what are the states and what are the polling and what are this and what are that. Actually, in fact, after the election, when I still kept doing that, I uh, renounced cable news and have not gone back to it because I I realized it wasn't good for my mind. But on the day after the election... I was positively exuberant. I, I probably met many, some of you may not have voted the same way. It makes it the point of the story. It doesn't matter how you voted. Uh, the day after the election was a Wednesday, and I was so excited about it because Wednesday morning we have our class down at the bottom of the hill, and everybody there was excited about it. And I came in, and 
keeping myself together, modest Buddhist teacher sits down, and somebody said, could we just shout? So I said, yeah, yeah, well, we could shout, because most people in that particular group were really excited about their shouting. And I didn't sleep, really, the whole night, because I stayed up. I was at home alone, so there was, and I was excited, and I watched innumerable reruns of everything, and all the acceptance speeches. So, so I'm telling you all that to, a little bit to cover up for the how I'm just about to tell you the rest of the afternoon went. On the way home from that class, I stopped by a needlepoint store up in Sonoma County where I uh, uh, had for years bought wool and done a lot of very large needlepoints because that's what I do. And uh, I had a very pleasant relationship with the woman who's the proprietor of that store over the years. And I went in to pick up a needlepoint that had been blocked and was ready to hang on the wall. And uh, I was going out with it, and she said to me, perhaps you think about starting another needlepoint now. And I stopped, and I said, you know, I think I will pretty soon. I said, because I have all this energy. I'm thrilled about what happened yesterday with the election, and I really feel in a high mood from it. And she said, well... I certainly didn't. I almost didn't. I, I thought I was going to kill myself. I almost closed the store. I said, what are you talking about? And she said, well, do you know who Mr. Obama is? I said, I think so. She said, and then she said a whole bunch of things about who she thought he was. And I said, well, do you know about who Mr. McCain is? Da, 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 da. And she said, well, do you know who his friends are? And, da, 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 da. and I said, well, you want to talk about friends? Da, 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 da. And then, that's why I had to give you the big build-up if I'd been up all night, and exuberance. So then I said, wait a minute. And I said, wait, I have to think a minute. I'll, I'll be in touch. And I go out the door, and I close the door, and I felt terrible. And I have realized that the operative line that I missed was she said, I was so upset, I thought I was going to kill myself. That's the operative line. Whether she's right or wrong, or I agree with her, or I don't agree with her, she's a person who was, for whatever reason, in genuine pain. And the only appropriate response to it was, I'm so sorry. I'd really like to reassure you that I think it's going to be okay. I'm really sorry that you were in pain yesterday. And I didn't do it. I just got into the whole thing. I was mortified with myself. And I thought, I'll go back in and tell her that. Then I thought, well, no, uh, you know, I'm too strung out. I'll go home and I'll phone. So I drive home, and a half hour later when I'm home, I phone her. And she doesn't answer the telephone. So then I think, oh, she was so upset she closed the store and went home. (laughs) That's my fault. And uh, so I leave a protracted message on the answering machine in which I apologize up and down for my, uh, genuinely, for my lack of wisdom in that moment and for the heedlessness and for the clouded mind that caused me to behave in that way. And I went on to say that, you know, my cousin in, the, in San Francisco has exactly the opposite politics from me and I love my cousin and... Uh, <laughs> I wish I could have a discussion with her, but she's not open to discussion, but I'm really sorry. Carried on, carried on, and I hung up. 
by and by she called me back and she said, after you left, I felt so embarrassed that I had lost it and done that. I'm really sorry about it. And I got your message. And, you know, unlike your cousin, I would be happy to talk to you at any time. <laughs> and we've always done such good needlepoint together. Anyway, that's enough of that story. But the whole story is that nothing that causes heedlessness is good for you. That even if the exuberance causes heedlessness, it's a great thing. People trample down soccer stadiums and in their exuberance. You know that it's one thing to get excited, and it's another thing to get so excited that you don't know what you're doing. And I really think shouting at soccer games and yaying when people win the presidency and you wanted them to is one thing. But the the context of wisdom around it. Not moderation, can't get excited. We can get excited, but to have excited, grounded in wisdom. To be truthful all the time is a very wise thing because your mind is not troubled by remorse. You don't have to worry about getting found out. You don't have to remember what you said the last time so you get caught in it. I really don't like to tell a non-truth at all because I, I hear it ring in my mind. I think that the great wisdom of the paramitas is that they liberate the heart from remorse, from guilt, from confusion. So maybe if I had moderate, if I had a little bit of renunciation of some of my hysteria, if I would have kept it together a little bit. Or more wisdom. There's a certain way in which I think it's all wisdom. And the fundamental wisdom is always the same. You know, um, I love to tell people when I went to... uh, I went to Washington, D.C. last summer. The Dalai Lama was doing an initiation, the, the Kala Chakra initiation. And uh, so it's 10 days long, and uh, there's a lot of chanting and praying and preparation and teachings all day, every day. And at the end, everybody takes the vow to devote themselves, dedicate themselves to the well-being of all beings ever and ever, forever and ever. And His Holiness said, uh, the, the Dalai Lama said the first morning, he said, what you need to be able to take that vow and have it actually transmit into you is you need to have a mind that is grounded in ethics and you need to have generosity of spirit. And they both seem to me, that that, that seemed to me to be really focusing on the paramitas, a mind that is, has ethics in it, and generosity of spirit. And then when I came home from Washington and I was telling some of my colleagues here about how great it was, um, my friend uh, Sally Clough said to me, "Did his, uh, I said it was great, it was really wonderful. She said, did His Holiness say anything new? And I thought about it for a while, 
And then I said, no, actually, His Holiness didn't say anything new. Because what is there to say new? I mean, <laughs> the same truth is always true. That clinging and craving and incessant wanting is, is the cause of suffering. That generosity and sharing and connectedness is a source of happiness. That happiness is a possibility. That happiness is actually our birthright. That natural peace and ease is actually what's fundamental in our minds when we clear away the clouds of confusion. That all of practice, the cultivation of the paramis, the cultivation through meditation of direct insight, are ways of clearing out the clouds that lead to heedlessness. That the taking of precepts over and over again is a way of aligning the mind with the dedication to see clearly, to not cause any harm in any way, and to be able to keep the mind clear enough so that heedlessness doesn't get in the way of fulfilling those vows. I love it that many people that that, uh, decide to have a marriage ceremony these days are beginning to use those um, precepts as marriage vows. They, they preface them by saying, because I love you, because I love you, I promise not to harm you in any way. Because I love you, I promise not to take anything from you that is not freely given. Because I love you, I plan to treat your body with kindness and respect and honor our intimacy. Because I love you, I only will speak gently and kindly and truthfully to you. And because I love you, I undertake the vow to not do any activity that leads to heedlessness so that I can, in fact, fulfill those vows of caring for you. I know people who get up every morning and say those vows to each other. So we can just sit for a minute. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.